Welcome to Food Marketing Nerds, your weekly serving of marketing advice and industry insights with the smartest minds in the business. Here's your host, Alex Osterley. What is up, everybody? Today's episode goes out to all the kombucha nerds in the audience. If you're a first-time listener, thanks for joining us. And if you're a long-time listener of the podcast, you'll know this interview is a little bit of a change of pace from our usual conversations around tactics and strategies in the food and beverage marketing world. And instead, we're diving deeper into a category that has had a major impact on the food and beverage industry. Today, we're chatting with Hannah Crum, founder and president of Kombucha Brewers International. Hannah, otherwise known as Kombucha Mama, has a profound understanding of the industry, best practices, and what it takes to be a success. Hannah's demeanor is as effervescent as the kombucha her trade association represents. And if you've ever considered launching a kombucha product line or have crossover with the category in some way, then stay tuned for today's deep dive into a rapidly evolving world of fermented tea. Hannah, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Alex. So what's your story? (laughs) The story is kombucha found me. You know, a lot of people come to kombucha because they've tried a variety of different remedies and maybe they're not getting the results they want. And kombucha has sort of this legendary status. It was traditionally called the beverage of immortality or the tea of long life. So clearly ancient people also recognized that it had some benefits to their health as well. I wasn't someone who was deliberately seeking out help, but I visited a friend from college who'd moved to San Francisco, talk about a groovy place. He was brewing kombucha. I'd never heard of it, never tried it, but I saw those magical jars. So when I went back to LA, I went to Whole Foods and lo and behold, there were shelves and shelves of kombucha. This was back in the early 2000s. I grabbed one off the shelf and I took my first sip right there in the store and well, what was your experience like, Alex? I know you've tried kombucha. What do you? What did you think of your first sip? Oh, I've tried it plenty of times. I was pretty thrown off. I had seen people, it was when I was in college, that it really started to go a little more mainstream. I'd just see people drinking it around campus. And the floaties, what I now know is scoby, the vinegary smell is what put me off. But it was interesting. I wasn't sure what to think. And that's how a lot of people are when they first encounter kombucha. For me, it was the opposite experience. It was like love at first sip. The angels were singing. Every nerve ending in my body was electrified. Now, there's a reason for that. My true confession is that I'm a closet pickle juice drinker. (laughs) (laughs) So savory, salty, sour, those flavors just really resonate with me. And it was at a time when I wasn't really eating great food, you know, a lot of processed food, sort of post-college, still doing the ramen thing, you know, microwavable meals and all that. And so my body just was not used to getting that type of living nutrition. And so I think it was like, yes, it became quickly thirsty for the way that kombucha made me feel. And my thirst outgrew my budget. You know, for a lot of folks, kombucha is an amazing beverage, but can sometimes be more expensive than other types of beverages. But because I had seen my friend making it himself, I was inspired to do the same. As I mentioned before, I'm not much of a cook. So I think that's just a testament to how easy it is to make it at home. Literally, if you can brew a cup of tea, you can brew kombucha. So I sourced the culture, I started brewing and my husband didn't love it at first either, but I finally came up with a flavor he liked and he had some really transformative health experience as well as a result of drinking kombucha. And honestly, it was a hobby. It was just something I loved, but I was passionate about and I wanted to educate people about it. So I started teaching out of my home here in Los Angeles And I call it kombucha camp, camp with a K. (laughs) I'm a multilinguist. I speak Mandarin, Chinese, Spanish, some French, things like that. So I'm a big word nerd. So for me, it was just fun to have that word play. And it really has always been about education. And so 
that was in 2004 I started teaching. Then in 07, when blogging started becoming sort of the thing of the times, I shifted my knowledge online. At that point, people just started asking, hey, do you have a SCOBY? And organically, I put some PayPal buttons up and who knew over time I'd end up a bacteria farmer, a commercial producer, a consultant, a founder of the trade association where I still serve as president. It's exciting. So clearly, you know, a ton about kombucha. What was it that inspired you to found KBI? So when I started that blog in 07, I was also a collector. I was a collector of brands. I was so excited about this young industry. I reached out to every brand I could find online. I put all their links on my website. I did podcasts before those were really popular and just really wanted to help highlight this industry. And so When 2010 happened, so for those who don't know, in 2010, Whole Foods asked all of the commercial kombucha producers to buy back their kombucha, basically clearing the shelves of all kombucha because there were trace amounts of alcohol found in some commercial kombucha that's above the current legal threshold for taxation, which is half a percent ABV. Just for clarification, that half a percent isn't tied to any sort of scientific research or study about alcohol toxicity, but it is where taxation occurs. And so again, this wasn't a consumer complaint. This wasn't a federal recall like we see on packaged goods or what peanut butter famously ice cream, spinach or romaine or some of those issues we've seen in the past. So it was nothing like that. But because it was out of that technical spec, it was a huge blow to our industry. It was kind of a traumatic event for a brand to have to buy back all of their product and to not know when they're going to be able to sell it again. And so when that occurred, it really, a seed was planted. What if, what if we had had a trade association place who could have been not representing a single brand, representing the entire industry, but offering support and communication and figuring out a way that we could have done this so it didn't create such a traumatic experience for our producers. So that's where the idea of KBI started. But it wasn't until 2014, January of 2014, when we had our very first conference, KombuchaCon. This year, we're about to celebrate our seventh annual conference. It was scheduled for April. Unfortunately, because of the world pandemic, we were not able to do our in-person event. And so we are shifting that to a virtual event coming up here September 17th and 18th. So what type of attendees do you typically get at the conference and what goes into getting the word out there? Aside from this podcast, of course. Of course. The folks who attend typically are our members. So we're a trade association. That means all of the commercial producers of kombucha from around the world are invited to join our organization. We have resources, education, information. We also do a lot of lobbying and regulator education. You know, kombucha is a new product. Regulators don't always know what to do with it. And it's always easier to say no than yes. And so we've done a lot of support in a variety of countries, Brazil, Canada, Australia, here in the U.S., with specific state governments and so forth. So that's the bulk of who's attending. The other folks who attend, of course, are our sponsors, our affiliate members. These are folks who support our industry. They make kegs, they make bottling equipment, labels, packaging, tea, sugar, anything that we would need for our industry, that's who's going to be there. Now, this year, what's really great, because it's a virtual event, it's our lowest ticket price ever. And that means we're anticipating several folks who maybe wouldn't have normally attended the in-person conference to have a chance to get this really top-notch quality, very specific information that would normally maybe be out of their budget. So unique to this year's event, also we're featuring four sessions on hard kombucha, which is a category that we've seen some really interesting growth in. 
kind of combined with the desire to consume alcoholic beverages either less or that have less alcohol. You know, it's hard to say that alcohol is healthy. (laughs) We're not totally allowed to say that, but there's been a lot of research showing that moderate, regular consumption, balanced consumption can actually have a positive effect on the human body. Now, if we couple that with some of the great organic acids in kombucha, you have a beverage that not only tastes delicious, but typically doesn't leave you with the same negative impacts of alcohol on the other end, like a hangover and things like that. Curious, is the alcoholic kombucha one of the bigger rising trends in the industry, in the kombucha space at least? Right now it is. And again, I think it's just coupled with this desire from the younger crowd to find beverages that serve more than just a refreshment purpose, right? Gone are the days of the 20th century when we're just looking to slake our thirst. And here are the days when people are reading the labels on their bottles. They want transparency from the companies they're purchasing from. They're looking for a health promise. You know, they want the money they're investing in the food and beverages they're purchasing to be more than just entertaining for their taste buds. And so hard kombucha really fits nicely into that slot. And even if it isn't hard kombucha, it's a great alternative for folks who want to have a complex, delicious beverage, but without the alcohol of either beer or wine. So in that case, I'm referring to, of course, you know, regular kombucha. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think with what happened at Whole Foods in 2010 and kombucha kind of being a a rising star, it's much more mainstream now for sure. But when it comes to whether it's addressing misperceptions or getting people to get past that point that I was at where I saw something floating in a drink and thought it was completely off-putting. Where does your trade association come into play when, in terms of guiding that message or bringing awareness to kombucha is safe or not going to get a DUI from drinking a couple kombuchas? I I mean, non-alcoholic kombuchas. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So the misperceptions that we hear is, you know, like, Kombucha is dangerous. Like if you make it at home, you're risking potentially putting quote unquote bad bacteria into your system and that could be dangerous and that really freaks people out. The reality is like all fermented foods, and this is even, you know, why it has trace amounts of alcohol, like all fermented foods, that low pH from the organic acids plus the trace amounts of alcohol that it's producing serves a mold preventative effect. Like those things kill pathogens on contact. There's been plenty of research showing that it kills E. coli, salmonella, listeria, and some of the bad guys on contact, which means kombucha is actually incredibly safe to make at home. Some of the other misperceptions are you can only have a small amount of it per day. The reality is how much you can tolerate really depends on the state of your personal microbiome. We call it bowel tolerance. That's sort of the way that we understand even taking supplements and things like this. If it's creating an issue such that you're in the restroom more than you prefer, it's just a sign that maybe you're overconsuming it and you ought to drop that back. But the same can be true if you overconsume fruit or if you overconsume any sort of living food in a quantity that isn't appropriate for your organism. But to speak to how does our organization work to dispel this information, you know, we just launched our code of practice in July. This is sort of our definition of kombucha. It also outlines the different ways in which kombucha is produced right now. And it calls for more transparency on labeling so that consumers are able to choose the kombucha product that best fits their needs in that moment. So for example, we have, of course, our traditional kombuchas. Those are going to be your raw, living, unpasteurized, maybe has that floater or scoby in it. And it's going to have this sort of fun, funky flavor that's going to be that acquired taste for the more sophisticated consumer. 
then we also have products that are using kombucha from base. Because we're an acetic acid ferment like vinegar, what we can do is we can ferment the kombucha to the point where no sugar remains and all the alcohol is converted into acids. Now that product, just like vinegar, is going to be something you're not going to want to drink as a beverage. However, by diluting it with water, sometimes they add probiotics and flavorings and non-fermentable sugars or zero-calorie sugars such as stevia or monk fruit. So that kombucha is going to be for someone who wants that shelf-stable product. They're typically pasteurized. They also have that zero-calorie sugar type of feel to it, but it's not going to have the same type of flavor profile or experience that you have drinking a traditional kombucha. So we're really excited to start educating consumers about these different types of kombucha and then adding to that to help lend a little more sophistication and lexicon to our industry. We're working on what we're calling a kombucha sourness unit. Hmm. So just like beer has international bitterness units or hot peppers have the Scoville scale, and that helps you figure out how much you can tolerate, the sourness unit is for folks like yourself who maybe that initial tang is a little off-putting. And so people will be able to see where they fall on that scale and find kombuchas that are right for them in that moment. Now, sometimes you want that fuller flavored, more tangy kombucha because it's going to be a great mixer for your kombucha cocktails and things like that versus the one you want for just the easy sipping. So I'm curious as far as the industry goes, how have you seen the kombucha category evolve over the past, say, five to 10 years? And how does it look as far as new brewers entering the market? You know, we've seen a tremendous amount of growth in the last five to 10 years. We've been experiencing 30% growth in the natural channel where it started year after year. We've also seen 50% and higher growth in the conventional channel. That's going to be your grocery stores, big box stores, C stores, convenience, things like that. And typically we're seeing the most penetration, like a lot of new foods on the coasts. Gradually, of course, that starts to fill in in other areas. And so other places where kombuchas become really popular, Colorado, Texas, even Montana has quite a a kombucha scene. And so what I think is really great about our industry is a couple of things. First of all, it's craft. So you're not just making the same sort of flavorings together with a bubbly water, like all the waters are so popular these days, but there's an actual skill. There's a craft. (laughs) It's artisanal. And it's also got a low barrier to entry. A lot of folks start out as home brewers. They get passionate about it. They oftentimes, and this is the story of GT's Health Aid and any number of folks who've started a kombucha brand, is often they've experienced a health challenge. Kombucha has helped them with that health challenge. And they are so grateful and they're so excited about how much better they feel that it inspires them to want to share that with their community. And so we really are a group of folks who are passionate about health, who really care about helping our communities thrive. And what I think is really wonderful about this opportunity is right now we're in uncertain times. We haven't even started to see where our economy is going to go, but companies that are nimble, that can move quickly, that are connected to their communities, that are locally minded, where they can root down and really be a vibrant member of their community, those are the businesses that are going to have an opportunity long-term. Given your perspective with the Trade Association, is there anything or any factors that separate kombucha brands who have really made it or have staying power versus the ones who seem to stagnate or stay in one place? You know, I think kombucha is something that's always innovating and we're still learning all the sort of iterations of kombucha that we're going to see in the world. And that's why the code of practice is so important. You know, some folks are saying, oh, well, I have this single strain probiotic I'm adding. I'm putting a little sourness in there. It's kombucha. Well, (laughs) that isn't exactly kombucha. 
We also see brands like GT's first to market. Of course, they're going to have the best opportunity. But what we can also look to is the line extensions. You know, they've expanded into coconut kefir and water kefir. We're seeing other kombucha brands extending into Jun, the raw honey green tea cousin, as well as these other types of iterations of kombucha and fermented beverages. And We've also seen innovation from places like HealthAid with Booch Pop and things like this, where they're trying to capture that person who maybe doesn't want that full strength kombucha, but still wants a beverage that's good for them and has that bubbly fun. So we're going to continue to see that type of innovation in our category. And I think that that's what's going to keep putting those brands apart. So if someone was set on launching their own kombucha brand, is there any advice that you would offer? Don't expect it to be easy. (laughs) I call it labor of love, emphasis on the labor. It's expensive to purchase all the fancy equipment up front. And most people hand bottle, hand label for many years before they are even able to graduate to more expensive equipment. And so just know that it's going to take a lot of time, effort, and energy. But I think Again, what allows our folks to be successful is they're not solely driven by a profit motive. They really do get satisfaction from knowing the product they're putting out there is helping people. And they often are getting that feedback in real time. So when you're sampling it out at farmer's markets or you're getting emails from folks talking about how much they love their product or how much it helped them or their child or their family, there's something about that feedback that is such a source of pride that just really enlivens you, but you have to be okay with that being part of the pay, so to speak, as opposed to expecting all of your future retirement plans are going to be completely secured in the first year or two. That's not going to happen. As you were describing the industry and how more localized craft brewers are entering the market and kind of owning or I guess, entering the space locally. It's interesting to at least compare the parallels between the beer and craft beer industry. You've got a few big national brands and then you've got the staying power of these craft brands, but with no intent to really go national like an Anheuser-Busch or a Bud Light or Budweiser. Absolutely. And you know, it was actually the Craft Brewers Association that I looked to first. I really modeled KBI. So my husband and I were the co-founders and I served as a volunteer for the first four years of the organization's life because I just really felt that we needed to create this safe space for us to come together and to solve our problems together. And so I'm really motivated by passion and love too. And I really do feel a kinship and an ownership and just a love of all of our different brands I call myself kombucha mama, mother of mazillions of bacteria around the world. We've inspired so many people to start a brand in their local community, and we've offered them support. And KBI is an extension of what we do, except as brands coming together, helping to support each other. And so that, I think, is the real opportunity is for folks who are passionate to come together with like minds, like hearts to build something that's different. The 20th century really was all about selling those processed foods and processed foods as a symbol of status. Whereas what we've learned is over consuming those foods can lead to detrimental health outcomes. And so the revival of fermented foods and drinks with kombucha being what I consider a gateway, right? Kombucha is not the last fermented beverage you're going to consume. It might be the first one (laughs) that you're getting into but now you're going to be open to sauerkraut and other things. And so it really has this sort of ability to transcend. It isn't just something to consume for refreshment. It really does have all these other layers of symbolism, metaphor, and meaning that go along with it. So as far as kombucha becoming a little more mainstream, were there any catalysts to the more widespread adoption? I mean, 
I think education, right? So right now where we're at, we need to get 80% more people knowing about kombucha. How are we going to do that? Well, that's the exciting part. While the first part of our organization's history has been about sort of stabilization, understanding, we needed authentic testing methods for ethanol so we could have a baseline understanding of how our products are really measuring out. We needed to create this code of practice. We launched the Kombucha Act to help create some tax relief for our smallest producers. So now that we've sort of created this sort of stable foundation to grow from, we're shifting into education and consumer education. So that, like I said, is talking about our styles. We're going to be creating a kombucha cup. We want to be able to judge kombuchas, create distinction and honor in our industry. People can use that as bragging rights. We're also going to create this sort of flavor flower where, again, consumers who drink beverages like craft spirits or tea or coffee even, they understand these nuanced, sophisticated vocabulary words, et cetera. And so creating that, but then also helping people understand that, look, Kavita is owned by Pepsi. My hope is that we can work with Kavita and Pepsi and use their platform, which is (laughs) ubiquitous, right? We all see Mountain Dew's the sponsor of the NBA playoffs this year. Well, what if that was Kavita or their kombucha product that was sponsoring the NBA playoffs? How many more consumers could we get into our category if we could leverage that type of platform? So we're really excited that these soda companies are coming into our space because they're hopefully giving us an opportunity to get the word out faster and farther. Well, if anyone from Pepsi is listening, <laughs> we need Britney Spears drinking Kavita <laughs> on a Super Bowl halftime commercial. Exactly. So in kind of guiding what education pieces or what messages deserve the right awareness, does KBI have any voice in that or provide any guidance to kombucha brands in, hey, this is important based on our knowledge base. Maybe the marketing should address this or I guess, what role does KBI play in influencing the topics of discussion in the industry? Absolutely. So, you know, we have a forum where our members are able to come and share that information, all of the different things we've implemented. So, for example, like this year, we did a couple things. First of all, we launched World Kombucha Day. So if we look at the mythology of kombucha, it's hinted that its origins are from ancient China as early as 221 BC. And so my husband, a few years ago, had the brilliant idea of let's make 221 a holiday. Let's call it World Kombucha Day. And so we launched our first World Kombucha Day this year. It was a great success. And we have some exciting plans for next year and how we plan to promote it with creativity. Like kombucha is just one of those things that it can be super creative. I'll give you an example here in a minute. But additionally, we also, once COVID happened and we saw that we needed to pivot, that we needed to support our small producers because many of them sell on-premise, obviously on-premise was shut down. We then spearheaded and launched our Heal In. So the Heal In was in order to support our smallest brands. Basically, the concept was to raise some money through selling gift cards, helping them pivot to being an e-commerce platform, and then KBI would match those gift card sales and allow them to donate that kombucha back to the community. And we ended up donating over 167,000 bottles back into the community. I heard from some of those who participated that they donated to fire stations, police stations, hospitals, food banks, and that they ended up getting new customers out of being able to donate their products. And so I think it truly just comes down to awareness and helping consumers understand that we're out there, that we are delicious, and that they really should give kombucha a try. 
in terms of the other aspects, like knowing what to talk about, that's been through our code of practice. You know, we've spent five years putting this together. I'm not going to say we spent every day working on it, but there was a lot of conversations, one-on-one conversations, meetings, webinars, trying to understand how we codify these products. And even still, we have some updating to do. And that's part of why we decided to go with a code of practice versus a standard of identity. So you mentioned World Kombucha Day, which I know KBI was primarily responsible for creating. What goes into creating a day like that? And how do you get others to accept and acknowledge that it's a thing? Of course, it's advertising. It's letting the world know. We did several contests and promotions where we gave away kombucha to consumers. Like I said, kombucha is really creative. So here's sort of an example. You can put kombucha like in any song. Any song can be made into a kombucha song. So like kombucha tea, easy as one, two, three. Brew sweet tea, add a scoby, wait a week and then repeat. Damn. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So I'm hoping that this year we can leverage sort of social media and people being stuck at home and wanting to be creative and maybe create a jingle for kombucha. Put kombucha to your favorite song. What does that look like? How does that turn out? So we're hoping that stimulating fun and creativity, which really is kombucha's personality, right? It's naturally bubbly. It's naturally fizzy. It's a little weird and funky. And I think people resonate with that vibe. And so the more that we sort of associate that vibe with our product, I think people are just really going to resonate with all the fun that comes out of drinking kombucha. So how has KBI, I guess, what channels has KBI had success in getting those more creative messages or calls to action out there? Social media. I mean, so Instagram, Facebook, we haven't ventured into TikTok yet. It's hard to know if we're going to be able to or not. But, you know, anywhere that people are gathering, where they're sharing fun little snippets, that's going to be a great place. Twitter, I don't see as much. That tends to be a different type of conversation happening there. But then certainly from the business side, we also tell people about what's going on with us through LinkedIn and places like that. But for consumers, it's really that Facebook, Instagram space where we're connecting with them. We created a great video that shares the history of Kombucha's Genesis. And I anticipate we'll be creating more of those types of assets to help people really understand, first of all, the differences of the different types of Kombucha, but also just introducing them to what kombucha is and why they should give it a try. So I have a very important question for you. If you had to pick, what's your favorite flavor or type of kombucha? Well, my fave flavor is one that I invented. It's called Love Potion, number 99, and it's blueberry, lavender, and rose. So Mm -hmm. I use actual lavender flowers and rose petals along with blueberry fruit. And it just makes this beautiful purple color. It's a delight to drink. It's a great substitute for wine because it has that sort of full-bodied flavor to it. You're getting all the anthocyanins, all of the antioxidants. Awesome. Well, in wrapping up, we have a couple questions that we ask all of our guests. And the first one being, if you could go back and give yourself, as you're just starting your career, a piece of advice, what would it be? Wow. I fell into this having no idea where it would take me. And it's been an amazing journey. So I think the advice I would give is enjoy the ride. You don't necessarily know where it's going to go or what's going to happen. And you also don't know when you're going to hit a peak and when you're going to hit a valley. And so instead of just assuming everything's always going to uh, be on the rise, also embrace those challenges as opportunities to evolve and grow. Awesome. So are there any books or podcasts that you often find yourself recommending? I think a really good one is Crucial Conversations by Carrie Patterson. 
especially for our industry, we tend to be folks who are coming from a diverse range of backgrounds. And that means we're not necessarily business savvy or know how to manage everything. And, you know, communication can be difficult, right? And so Crucial Conversations is a way to approach conversations from a different point of view so that you get the information communicated as opposed to coming from that more emotional space. And it's not to say emotions aren't valuable. They certainly are. But sometimes they can cloud our judgment or lead us to say things that maybe we don't mean. And so being able to sort of dissect what it is and how we communicate with others just leads to a healthier culture overall. And when you're in business, especially one that's as stressful and as physically demanding as kombucha, being able to communicate with your coworkers, employees, vendors, et cetera, is so valuable. So I found that book to be really helpful. Well, I just want to say thank you for coming on to the show and sharing your insights and your perspective. I think it's a really unique angle into an industry that is up and coming and not a ton of people really know enough about. So what does KBI have coming up and where can listeners go to get more info? Absolutely. So Virtual KCon is top of mind at the moment. We're super excited to launch this virtual event. That's coming up September 17th and 18th. Go to kombuchacon.com. And con is also with a K because as we said, we're cute and clever over here. (laughs) And then if you want to learn more about our association or our code of practice and all those other great things, check out kombuchabrewers.org. And for those who don't know, it's K-O-M-B-U-C-H-A, kombucha. Awesome. We will definitely link that up in the show notes. And thank you again, Hannah. It has been a pleasure and looking forward to seeing what you help the kombucha industry accomplish next. Thank you, Alex. Been a pleasure talking to you. Really appreciate it. And that wraps up our kombucha combo with Hannah. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcast for free and easy access to some great upcoming interviews. And if you like these interviews around specific categories within the industry, let us know. Drop me a note via email at alex at foodmarketingnerds.com. We love getting your messages and promise we read every single one. Thank you again for tuning in and we will catch you all next week. Food Marketing Nerds is a production of Blue Bear Creative. For interview transcripts and other downloadable resources, head to foodmarketingnerds.com.